Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Our guest on today's show is Alexandra Fine, the CEO of Dame Products. Alex got her master's in clinical psychology from Columbia University, focusing on an interest in sexuality. In 2014, she teamed up with mechanical engineer Janet Lieberman, and they launched Dame Products, a line of vibrators aimed at closing the pleasure gap. Their two products have both broken crowdfunding records, with one of them being the most successful sex toy crowdfunding campaign in history. Alex self-describes herself as a, quote, positive vibe slinger. For this episode in partnership with Dame, they're offering BBXX listeners 15% off with the code BBXX15. That's BBXX15. Check out dameproducts.com where they've got everything from a baseball cap with an orgasm face emoji on it, funky socks, a hands-free vibrator, lube, and all kinds of other fun stuff. Replace something old, try something new, let us know what you think, and get 15% off on us with the code BBXX15. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today. No problem. Happy to be here. So I'm going to start out by reading a quote that I found in an article that you had written. And it says, in the past four years of running a vibrator company, which has involved countless focus groups and rounds of product testing, I've absorbed a thing or two about sexual preferences, fears, aspirations, and misconceptions. And so kind of opening with that, I'd love for you to just give our listeners a bit of context and tell us about how you came to be where you are today. It's always hard to think of my own personal origin story, but I think it really does start from being really young. I remember being feeling sexual as a child, which is something that I think we don't really discuss and we ignore in children and we feel very uncomfortable by it. But I did feel that way when I was young. And when I was six, I went to a drag queen party. My cool aunt, I was staying with her in the city. She brought me to a party. I met some drag queens. 
I learned so much about my own femininity and what feminine power could be from them, as well as the idea that sex and gender are two separate distinct things. I went back to show and tell. I explained it to my class. They called the principal. The principal called my parents. My aunts got a strong talking to, and it really sparked this like, wait, why can't I talk about this? Why is there a truth in the world that isn't hurting anybody that I'm getting in trouble for sharing? Because for me, learning those truths felt very liberating, and I was so excited to tell my peers about it. And I think that kind of was really like the beginning of Alex wanting to be a sex educator and talking about those topics. When I was in middle school, the continued like, I'm a very overly friendly person. I'm definitely going to embarrass my children by like saying hi to everybody in front of them. And I was also really excited to explore sexuality when I started to feel like this was the age appropriate time to really explore it. And I remember like the first boy I kissed, he got high fives and like I got slut shamed. How old were you? I was 12 or 11. It was middle school. I was 11 or 12. I was like my first French kiss, which was gross. <laughs> and like in front of a bunch of people where like 20 people were watching and then they counted down and then we kissed. And then literally like right after everybody was like giving him high fives and like I didn't exist. And if anything, I was spoken poorly of. And it really sparked this whole thing for me where like I really shaped the way I was going to explore sex to make sure that people weren't going to say negative things about me. And I don't know if I always did a great job with that, but I remember really wanting to have sex with a boyfriend and making him wait. I was trying so hard to wait until I was 16 because I was so scared of being slut shamed. I don't think I made it all the way there, but like going back and thinking about that, that is so silly. I wish there's no, like, I was ready. I was excited. It was what I wanted to do, whether it was for the right reasons or, you know, it was what I wanted. And I prevented myself from experiencing life because I was so scared of being slut shamed. So there's that. Then I got HPV and I wanted to tell everybody about it. And all of these things essentially led me to wanting to become a sex therapist I got my master's in clinical psychology from Columbia and was going down the sex educator, the, the researcher path, started realizing that I wanted to talk to people more than researching was going to allow. And I wanted to just do more. I mean, I'm, I'm really impatient. I have a lot of typical entrepreneur characteristics and kind of started to realize like, oh, I can take this passion I have for redefining what sexual pleasure is supposed to be for us, what it specifically really means for women, and do it in a different way by creating products and creating a brand that offers services. So that's what I ended up doing. The universe put me in touch with my co-founder who went to MIT for mechanical engineering. She took this crazy idea I had and made it into a reality. We launched it on Indiegogo. We raised $575,000 in 45 days for our product Eva, which is a hands-free clitoral vibrator that can be worn in between the labia during penetrative sex. So it stays there hands-free and 
It's a really great way of getting additional clitoral stimulation. Now, like five years later, we have a line of vibrators. We have an all-natural aloe-based lubricant in a body positioning pillow. So yeah, we've been really expanding. And I think my path kind of starts with where a lot of your other guests have started. And I think for me, like if you are drawn to sexuality in some way, if there's something about your soul that, that's pulling you to this topic, I think growing up for me, it felt like academia was the only way. And I've been able to find my own path that allows me to have the conversations and impact in the world that I wanted to have that aligns better with, I think, who, who I am and what my skill sets are. Right. Kind of that need to, at least for present day, step outside of academia into at least the space that I think startups have allowed us both in order to hopefully have that society and cultural influence that can eventually work its way back into and evolve the academia and the opportunities within that realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually something I've really noticed is that, you know, a lot of academia is actually funded by private institutions often, whether it's the research or they're not siloed. The world is this really grand collective space. And the more private institutions that are trying to champion sexuality, the more likely than the researchers will have the proper funding in order to do a lot of the research they want to do. Yeah, you kind of also touched on that story of you as a child and feeling sexual when you were a child. I wish I had even known what sexual was. I think that language plays such a huge role in shaping how we think and therefore who we become. And so if we don't even have the exposure to certain things and the language to identify those feelings or those characteristics, then I think that definitely can kind of trap us. So one that was cool that you did have the language to identify as such, and you touched on the kind of femininity. And I'd love to hear again, going off of how language is so important in sort of operating definitions, how you would define femininity and then how you would define masculinity? Oh my God, those are such big questions. And I think it's a really exciting thing to think about because, well, one, I think that femininity and masculinity, I do really think that ultimately that they're social constructs. Um, of course, that I think that they, both characteristics can exist within one person, one person with one sex can feel the alignment. Like you can be female at birth and feel very feminine and you can be female at birth and feel very masculine. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that those terms are really socially constructed and that we've made them up. I think about this a lot, like what's truly feminine? Like what is a hundred percent, whether it's in a visual versus what is masculine. And I guess I would say, to me, femininity tends to be softness and curves, and masculinity is right angles and sharpness. And again, like, I think this is all made up, but I can kind of maybe understand how, like, since women have the ability to bear children, nurturing is now viewed as a feminine quality, while men in general 
were hunters and gatherers and the fighters, and therefore aggressiveness is viewed as an inherently masculine quality. When I'm negotiating, like when I'm doing business, I often really do feel, I try to tap into what feels like my, the masculine part of me. And I do think, again, all of that's made up. These are layers of socially constructed things that maybe had a seedling of truth at one point. Yeah, I think kind of going off how you were saying, you know, how much are they a, a social construct? And I, too, feel as though I have many, I guess, what would be considered masculine attributes or masculine energy, or I think it's more what it stands for and how it kind of pigeonholes femininity into this one thing. Well, one, you know, I struggle with this, too, because it's like, does the binary truly serve us? And, you know, I don't really have the answer for that. I know that the binary is what I was raised in and how it was the language I was given. And I believe that language shapes our reality. So it is often how I still see the world. But I think that ultimately it's so much more fluid and bulbous than these two distinct things. I like to, I like visualize it as like an amorphous blob that like moves through time and space. And like, that's our identity because it just is constantly changing and fluxing. And I think what it means to be a woman in your early twenties versus what it means to be a woman in your forties is like just a, a whole different experience. And I also think like when I think of nurturing, I think of fierceness in nurturing and like this really powerful love that feels really strong to me. Yeah. And I think that we can expand on femininity so it does feel stronger. The idea that like masculinity is strength and femininity is weak, that's got to go. What role do you think culture plays in the development of our identities or that shaping of the blob? I think like, you know, what is it like form is emptiness and emptiness is form just like a Buddhist saying, and that's, I don't think we exist without culture. I mean, I kind of think the idea that we even exist at all is questionable. I think our culture shapes us tremendously and we exist within it. Mm -hmm. Going off of what we were talking about before with that dance between or blending of or contradiction of one of <laughs> this amazing photo of you in your wedding dress, it says, I'm a lady and I poop. I'm big and I am tiny. I'm a wife and a child. I'm a successful business owner and I'm truly lazy. I am a many of identities. So I'd love for you just to kind of speak off of that and to that contradiction that does exist within each one of our own identities and in culture. This is me on the toilet in my wedding dress, right? Like, first of all, that picture... It's like my favorite picture of the whole wedding. Like, I'm not even joking. I think getting dressed up in a wedding dress feels so silly. And in a lot of ways, I did not feel like myself in that dress. I just think that there are simultaneous truths that exist within all of us and that they are so beautiful to just hold all of them all at once and to acknowledge that, like, you can be strong and you can be soft. I can be all of those things. It makes me have a lot of self-love when I hold space for my contradictions. What are you? What am I? Are you small and big? 
How are you small and big? <laughs> oh, that one, I think the way it speaks to me is in presence, sort of, and how I around certain people or people I don't know well or in situations that I am either <laughs> not interested in or I sometimes also just love to listen. And so I think that I can have a very small presence, but at the same time, that can easily shift with one question. The whole interaction could be based on what somebody else is saying. But if the one question that you asked is what led to it, I think that's a way of being big. I also <laughs> have a lot of energy. Sometimes it's not present, but then sometimes, again, you know, around other people, maybe you are kind of the person carrying the energy versus helping people kind of dig into and bring out their own energy as that more in the background. I totally get what you're saying. First of all, that was beautiful. Now I know you a little bit better. And I do feel like hearing you speak about the way you know yourself in these different contexts and how you can, that there are different versions of you or different waves of you. You kind of can bring those to the table depending on the day or the need. Like I don't always need to be a boss, but I can be. I definitely don't always want to be. Yeah, I was just about to say, and sometimes... You feel like you can't be. <laughs> I remember when people ask, you know, what the definition of love is. And I think it's different for everyone. But I have toyed around or in the past, played around with the idea of just kind of being with that person helps you love who you are more or brings out your favorite version of yourself. And sometimes that's very different. And sometimes it's in one relationship, it's that. But then three years later, it brings out a totally different version of yourself, but maybe certain things have changed. And that then becomes kind of the version of yourself that you want to be. I think that when we try to understand love, it's best understood as an action more than a feeling. And I think that the action, I mean, this is somebody else's quote. Well, it's not their quote, but like defining love is really challenging. I've read a bunch of different definitions and the one that I've always really liked. It's like the the choice to spend your energy to help somebody else grow or yourself grow. When you love somebody or when you love yourself, you're giving it the energy and the time to spiritually grow. I like that one because it's beyond just this idea of good feelings, like so, like tough love. Like when you really love somebody and you want to push them because you don't, you love them so much and you think they could be doing more or you think they're struggling with something and you want them to stop doing X, that can be a loving act, even if it doesn't make them feel good. And there is the contradiction. Love doesn't always feel good. Yeah. Love isn't, but love should make you feel like you're growing. I think another important part of love, and be it romantic or with friends, is connecting with somebody who's weird in the same way that you are. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> it's so fun. Like when you find out you both like secretly really like this weird cartoon or both like really listened to Real McCoy back in the day. Like I loved Real McCoy. <laughs> and I think kind of the last thing I guess I would say about that is 
you spoke earlier about those versions of ourselves. And I think people really focus on trying to be a certain version of their self rather than trying to find as many different versions of themselves that they can. Oh my God, that is beautiful. Because you can't grow if you're not expanding and trying these other things and putting on somebody else's shoes, a different pair of your own shoes per se. And so I think that exploration and learning requires being different versions of ourselves. And that's okay that there are many different versions and there will certainly continue to be. It's so cool to think that you really can wake up and be a different person. I think a lot of people think that they can never change, but really we can change. And also when you were talking, it was really, it felt like a good analogy to, to, to sex, which is, I think it's really important in sex and finding our sexual selves and the things that we like and don't like to explore different things, to find out if we like pressure or light touch or our nipples touch or the back of our necks touch. And I also think part of that discovery, it is so beautiful to find out what you don't like and who you don't want to be. Whether it's like you try anal sex and you realize you really didn't like it and you're just going to let that one just stay a fantasy thing that you like to masturbate to, but you're not going to do it in real life. Like, that's awesome. You know that about yourself and that's really wonderful. And if you go out there and you try to be a different type of yourself and personality, and then you wake up the next day and you're like, you know what? I don't feel good about how I acted or I don't, I didn't like ecstatic dance. Great. Like, I think who you are is predominantly the things that bring you pleasure and knowing the things that bring you pleasure and knowing the things that you don't like. Yeah, because I think, and I often say this too, that because people are constantly looking for what they like or what they want to be or who they are, but I think that just as people are looking for success and that definition is so different. The only way to get there is failure, not to say any of this is failure, but not only important, but actually vital, necessary part of ever finding out who you are, if that's possible, because it's constantly evolving. And if you ever get there, it would be static. But I think that figuring out what you don't like, who you aren't, trying careers that you don't like, those versions of the only way to kind of get closer to what it is you do want to be or receive, et cetera, is, is yeah, to just tick off the things you don't like. Because you're never just going to wake up and know without having tried things that were either similar or the complete opposite. And so I think that rather than, as we discussed before with that binary and creating, expanding, so it's this range or this melding, I think people, even within that, already narrow binary pick just this small part of it. And that is their part rather than sliding along it or up and down and slowly working from the outside in to narrow down from the things they've tried, the people they've been with, the lessons they've learned to then find that place rather than just assuming from the beginning that's where they want to or were meant to be. And so to bring it back to to Dame and particularly some of the work of yours 
that I've been following and that we've similarly struggled with is kind of the restriction on advertisement and exposure. And so conversation, it's a restriction on conversation and sex. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, here's my pitch in general, like sex, as I'm sure you already know, is an incredibly part of the human society. It's an important part of our personal health. It's an important part of our romantic relationships. And we do not have the words and are actually like not even really allowed to talk about it. But I can't think of anything else that is this important that we just don't talk about. And the conversations are just censored. And it's harder to have a podcast in this category. It's harder to start a business in this category. Everything about wanting to make sex better is met with such institutional societal resistance in a way that just seems so illogical to me, so profoundly stupid of us as a society. We exist because of sex. We are have become very aware of how unhappy so many people are with certain sexual experiences, whether it's you know sexual assault, having pain during sex. You know, I think if you ask men how is sex supposed to feel, they're all going to tell you it feels good. If you ask a woman, a young girl, like who's about to have sex for the first time, how she's feeling about it, she really might tell you that she's scared it's going to hurt. We can make it better. We've made so many other things better. I mean, we have, I think, made sex better in a lot of ways, but now we just need to talk about it in order to improve it. It's wild to watch those congressional hearings with, with Zuckerberg and listening to him talk about connecting people, freedom of speech, raising voices, helping businesses grow. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, you don't help me do any of those things. You have shut down my voice and you are putting free speech in front of truth. And I'm my advertisements, my messaging, it's all based on science. And we work really hard to say truthful statements about you know what we think sex should be, like sex should be safe, consensual, and pleasurable. Um, you get to define pleasure. If pain feels pleasurable to you, that's wonderful. And I, I cannot believe how controversial that statement is. You kind of mentioned they censor conversation and part of our, what is a book club that's actually email content curation. We talk about changing the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. But we once tried to run an ad that said, I almost did it as a joke just to see what happened. It was a picture of somebody hiking and it said, love your family. <laughs> and it was denied for obscenity. So it's then going back to the entire profiles, entire companies being flagged and can't run anything. So then it's people, it's thoughts and ideas that are being censored, which kind of takes it even further. Because as we talked about in the beginning, if you don't even, it's not even you're not able to take part in a conversation you're already having in your head. It's denying you kind of the capacity and the exposure necessary to spur those thoughts and ideas in your own head to start that conversation in the first place. And there is a conversation happening too, which is often one about sex and fear, about 
sex only inside of the marriage or that like, you know, I, I know people who are shown a flower and then that flower is crumpled up and that was used as an analogy for what will happen to them if they have sex before marriage. Like, I think, oh my God, I'm going to get this stat wrong. I think it's only nine states that have medically accurate sex education. I mean, it is. Yeah, it used to be 13. And it's dropped. Right. Well, that's what we need. That's what the Me Too movement was about. I think for me, just kind of going off of the ads that I've run, because I think people don't really understand. I think they assume that I'm trying to run an ad that shows a vibrator and is like, buy a vibrator here. Like One, I wish I could do that because I can target that. And then you would know what you were clicking on. But what I was doing is I, as a person, was running advertisements that featured, because I knew that I could not push people to dameproducts.com because it sells vibrators. So I thought I'd be clever. And I ran advertisements that was like, thank you so much to the New York Times for featuring me and my story of female entrepreneurship or something to that extent. I did the same thing with the BBC video. Megyn Kelly had a Today Show. She put us on there. I tried to run ads there to the W Magazine article. And essentially, all of these articles were shut down because Facebook said those articles were inappropriate. Facebook said that the New York Times article about my business was too risky and that some of their viewers might find it insensitive. And I just think, whose sensitivities are you guys worried about? Because the lack of information is causing harm. And, you know, we had the same, we're suing the MTA because, I mean, the other thing about this is I'm sure you see it too, but like Facebook prompts me to try and boost my posts all of the time. Right. Yeah. They're like, boost this. Never mind. They're like, spend money here. And then they like slap you on the wrist. Well, same thing happened with the MTA. While I've been suing the MTA, they've reached out to me to see if I want to run ads. Again, it's not on an ad per ad basis. For ours, it was literally, and their policy states, it's it's basically a blanket ban too, where they don't have to tell you why your ad is denied. It just, if it falls even close to some imaginary category that has no clear line nor definition, you know, if they're probably just computer AI technology senses it, then there's not even the chance to have somebody actually look at it and say, this is a picture of a human being hiking and it says, love your family. Can you explain to me how this isn't appropriate? It's just they have this power to censor our thoughts and therefore conversations. And actually just yesterday came across a quote by Jim Morrison that says, whoever controls the media controls the mind. And that feels fitting. Yeah, I think a lot of powerful people have tried to also own media companies exactly for that reason. And you, in the beginning of this interview and in some of your writing before, have touched on not necessarily disregarding any of all of your preconceived notions, but maybe challenging them, thinking about things differently, giving things a chance. And as you said, kind of what your goal with Dame is, is to redefine sexual pleasure. And so I'd love to hear how it is that you would define sexual pleasure. I think our understanding of sexual pleasure is mostly locked in our like collective 
shadow conscious, like sex is bad. Sex is naughty time. Sex is for dark times. And I think all of that's fun. And I don't think it should go away. But I think that we need to be able to have conversations about sex in the light, where we frame sex as something that's beautiful and good and important. I personally like to use the word sacred, but people get a little, that word means different things for different people. But for me, it's a really profoundly special way I get to connect with my partner or myself or who else in my life and viewing it instead of this dirty thing as something that can help feed and help us thrive and live our best lives. And I think that a lot of people tend to see pleasures as being outcome-based rather than either being measured by something else, not necessarily an objective measurement of pleasure. Yeah, I think, you know, we also talk about the pleasure gap. And I think before we were talking about the pleasure gap, a lot of people were talking about the orgasm gap. And we decided internally we really wanted to refocus the gap on pleasure because orgasm doesn't mean pleasure. It's not the same thing. I also think the idea that orgasm is the goal of sex is a really limiting and I would argue male-centric idea of what sex can be. I think it's about just reframing pleasure in general. I think pleasure is a beautiful goal. I don't really believe in like hedonism, like just constant pleasure as the only goal of living our lives, because I think that that just ultimately leads to unhappiness in so many ways. And it's not, for me, it doesn't feel like all encompassing and fulfilling, but feeling good, feeling pleasure in our lives is what makes us feel alive. I think not feeling pleasure, not feeling joy, not enjoying the sensations in our breath as we breathe is what makes us feel dead when we're really alive. Yeah, I I think the part, and this starts so unbelievably young before I think we even recognize it, that sex is this, as you said, quote, naughty thing that we're supposed to ignore or control or, or not even have. And those really subtle subconscious cues that, that we get from really early childhood. And I think before we can even recognize we're being told how to act or what to think or in what ways to restrict ourselves, by the time it could even have the capacity to become conscious mm-hmm. on a conscious level, I think it's already ingrained in us. So I think mm-hmm. it almost preempts that process of recognizing what culture, society, or you know, family, friends, etc., are teaching us because of the way in which it becomes part of us and, and the script we follow before we were aware that that's even how we learn. Yeah. And so I think that that part is incredibly important because even if I think back to, I can't even imagine how young you're learning these subconscious cues or like 
getting too intimate with your teddy bear and you know and people are like oh don't do that that's weird but imagine walking in and seeing your daughter or son like playing with themselves at a really young age and like how do you respond and how does it make you feel and then what are you telling your kid with that response even even as like I sit here and I'm like I do feel like I'm like oh my god I just like I can't believe my because you know I hear you know it happens really young young like little little kids and infants even touch themselves so how does the parent react and how do you want to react to that moment we don't even talk about how that's going to happen to give you time to think about how you're going to respond so you don't fuck up your kid which might be inevitable but at least in this in this narrow instance a bit less it's inevitable not only is it inevitable but i think it's actually really kind of i think that's the whole point of maybe having kids (laughs) Is it just like kind of, I don't know, you can't do it perfectly. But, you know, I would imagine that my mom probably cringed or, you know, I don't have that early memory of what that experience was like. But I, you know, I must have really early on developed, I I knew really quickly that what I was doing was something like I didn't want my mom to Mm -hmm. know about. Like, I don't ever remember not thinking that. Yeah, I didn't even have that experience. I know so many people did in their youth or even childhood with self-pleasure, exploration. And here I am like, well, I figured it out way too late. I wish when I was younger, I would have, I don't know, had some cues versus like decades later or when I was, you know, 20, basically. But there's this hilarious story. One of my friends from high school and she talks about, you know, it's always the Ottoman. It's always like the footrest mm-hmm. of the couch or like the armrest of or the, the couch armrest. that seems yeah. to really be the go-to. And mm-hmm. I remember she said, she was describing this moment where she's full on, you know, all fours on top of the ottoman, kind of going for it. And her mom walks in and she's like, I'm looking for my necklace. <laughs> and like is pretending to be like reaching under the ottoman like looking for her little claire's jewelry necklace because she's like eight years old or i don't even know what just like i'm looking for my necklace and so those confrontational moments that but with the the awkwardness and the shock and you know i don't know it's shame on the, the you know maybe parents and even more but the differentiation being that the shame is in you know becoming a part of this moment you weren't invited to and maybe we're you know not supposed to know about or can know about but you know not ever come face to face with it's not in the act itself it's in you know that it's a private thing that you know is something special people have for themselves versus when somebody accidentally becomes part of it then then it's awkward and, and shocking and probably even more so for the parents than for the children because the children it's kind of like oh my god what do I do well my options are you know try and lie sit here say something there's not much you can do versus the parents then feel an obligation to teach this moral lesson be it that's healthy that's a great thing that's okay you know or that's a, a private thing you know you don't do at school or da 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 or if they choose to go the route of trying to teach their children that it's not healthy, but I think they feel this moral obligation and weight and responsibility that's harder to react to. Yeah, I agree. So Dame Products is currently suing the MTA because the MTA originally said, the MTA is the New York City subway system. 
They originally said we can run advertisements. They then changed their mind on us and acted like they had never originally said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, they were running advertisements for like erectile dysfunction, for dating apps, for moving trucks that literally explicitly state that they will help you move your sex toys. But I wasn't allowed to run advertisements. So, and like the biggest thing when I talked to people or when the news broke and what anchors were saying was, you know, this common question of like, I don't think any of these ads should be allowed, which I still felt like, okay, well, that's still in my favor. You're at least admitting that it's been unfair. Uh, But like, what about the children? Like children run the subway and they're going to see these advertisements. And I'm like, what do you think the kid's going to learn from some of these ads? Versus also like advertisements about breast enhancements. Kids are going to see advertisements and it's not just the content. Like it's, it's a bigger picture. A lot of times, like if you looked at my advertisements, it says toys for sex. Like what's your kid going to learn from that? Depending on their age, it'd have to be about six, right? To read it. And really what I find is it's more that I don't know how I'm going to respond. The parent is the one that is uncomfortable. The parent doesn't know how to respond and what they want to say or how they want to just like explain these things. But there's nothing wrong with them knowing. And also there's, well, one, parents can always just say, I'm not prepared to answer that question right now. Can you give me a moment? I always like to remind parents, they don't need to have the answer right then and there. And that, you know, sex is something adults do. It's supposed to feel pleasurable. And some people use products to help them feel more pleasure during it. I don't think it's that challenging to explain. There's this sex educator who has a really great story about her and her daughter and her experience that like really blew me away. She talks about the first time, I don't know how many times it's happened. She walked into a room and she saw her three or four-year-old daughter, very young, playing with puzzle pieces in a way where she was clearly kind of rubbing one of the puzzle pieces against her vulva. And she walked in, she was like, oh my God. She had a moment and then the action that she took, I, I just think it's like blew my fucking mind. I don't know. Was she actually realized there was nothing to say and she just left the room and let her daughter be. Mm. She was like, I didn't need to address it right then and there. You know, she was really young. She was in private. She was in a private space that I had come into. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, I don't know. Like I would. I would have never thought to do that. And then I really like sat with it. And I, and I think it's such a beautiful response. You know, she talks to her daughter at other times to understand that that is something you do in private. But I did think that was a really powerful story. Yeah, it almost made me wonder too, if a kid walks in on their parents having sex. They would just leave the room. Yeah, they'd probably just leave the room. Or I wonder, you know, then what the moral lesson the parent would teach the kid because I can't imagine that they would try and teach their kid it's something unhealthy or bad, or I would hope not. Yeah. Maybe just that it's something meant to help people connect or learn more about each other, you know, but it's something they do in private that wasn't meant for the other person to be a part of. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought exercise, I think, to kind of turn it around like that. Yeah, it is. And I think it's always important to remember to like check in with your kid and see how they're feeling about the experience. Because, you know, I think some children walk in and see their parents having sex and like are scared. You know, if you really have no understanding of what sex is, they're just, you're like, are you hurting each other? Right, right, right. what? Explaining that, you know, this is like, oh, kind of like a a way of dance. Like it also depends on what the kid even understands at that age. You know, we talk about children, like 
the difference between a three-year-old and a six-year-old and a nine-year-old is, you know, vast. It's amazing. But yeah, I think, look, I think that it's going to take generations to, to change the way we understand sex. And honestly, I can't imagine a world. For me, my experience where I have learned, I have tied shame and sex a little bit together. I think sex is kind of fun because it is bad. I also think it's great for me. And I rationally really like, I know that it's something that makes me feel like a full person and makes me feel alive. And it also might change in my life. Mm -hmm. For me, I love the playful. To, it, now it feels playful. Like I love that sex can be, is a little naughty. Mm -hmm. Like that's fun for me. And that's where I go in sex. And I cannot imagine a world where the shame isn't a part of it. But it, I, you know, I hope that that's what will happen one day too, as we normalize it. But it's interesting because I, because my experience of it and a little bit what I like about it probably does come from a sense of shame. But I think again, it's going back to that the difference of the shame being in the act itself versus trying something new or like doing it in a public place or other things, you know, versus it being rooted on a deeper level. Oh, totally. And what I'm talking about for me in my playfulness isn't really shame. I'm talking about like, yeah, like novelty. Yeah. Or yeah. Or like role playing mm -hmm. and like letting my, yeah. letting my body like let go of social yeah. norms yeah. so I can like just be this more animalistic version of myself. It's not, it's not shame because I'm not really carrying it with me. Yeah. It's almost anti-shame. Yeah. Because it's almost not listening and not following the script. So I'd almost think it's, you know, it feels like shame because what you've been told is what's bad. But yeah. it's actually being shameless that is the freeing feeling. Yeah, that's actually very true. It is. It's being so shameless. I like that. I like that too. I like that too. But do you know what I'm saying about the part where tapping into my sexual energy feels a little naughty? Like living on the edge. Right. Right, something about that that I wonder would that go away though in like a hundred years? That's a great question. I think it would just evolve. You know, can we ever get to a point where there isn't a, a social script of shame surrounding sex? I'm not sure. If we did, would it change that feeling that you're referring to? I don't know, because it's still something that's a secret. You know, it's still something you do in private, whether it's bad or not. You know, even if it's not bad at all, it's still this kind of inside joke type thing that I think can have that fun, playful. I don't think like doing it on an airplane will ever become a norm. Oh, you know what's interesting? It's like, so when I think about feeling like I'm tapping into something more primal. Yeah. That doesn't feel like it needs the shame part. Like I do feel that without the shame, I could still tap in. Like it wouldn't feel like I was being naughty, but I would feel like, Ugh. I love that noise. Yes, that. Yeah, this is like, a, uh. yeah, totally. And that I don't think is going anywhere because that's literally ingrained. That is evolution has designed us yes. for that and to draw us to that. And I don't think, you know, sex was and will always you know hopefully even more so 
be something designed to, to connect us on a physical level, on an emotional level, you know, on a intimacy level. Yeah. I honestly think that without the naughtiness, it would probably be easier to just like tap into the connection to the primal uh, and the way it makes you like lock eyes with somebody and feel them. More of like the authentic vulnerability versus role play. You know, whether it's just role playing the, the shameless version of yourself or, you know, the primal naughty, it would more just be, but this is actually who I am. Yeah. You mentioned the connection of the mind and body, which I always talk about and love. And it's just such an intertwined, inevitable or kind of unavoidable relationship between the two. But I loved your example of when you have sex and you have an orgasm, but when your mind doesn't go with it, either, you know, sometimes it's like, you weren't prepared or it was unexpected or just happens too fast or something like that. When your mind isn't fully a part of it, it's not the same. It's not the, you know, amazing, more comprehensive experience when it's a combination of that mind orgasm going with the body orgasm. I mean, I've even been confused if I had an orgasm where it's like my body goes into refractory, meaning like I don't want to be touched for a second or I could tell like, like I really lost the wave, but I was like, fuck, I totally missed that orgasm. Yeah. Or I'm sure for a lot of people, probably the opposite as well. Mm. I think men and women for whom it's not as easy or even when you don't have an orgasm, which obviously happens, whether it's sometimes, a lot of the time, most of the time. But obviously, there's the capacity for a deep amount of pleasure and connection that that comes out of that. So you can have that deep amount of pleasure that in the end can be you know, preferred probably, depending on the case, you know, if it's a, a, a shorter amount of time and, and pleasure and connection with, you know, this body orgasm versus a full experience of the mind and, and that kind of not only physical chemistry, but mental, you know, emotional or even like playful chemistry, you know, humorous chemistry that can be so much more dynamic and powerful. And obviously, you know, if you can get the full package, but you know, that's a, that's a double rainbow. I think sex as most of us imagine it is one of our most embodied experiences. I think a really cool aspect of that is that when we kind of like let go, like, you know, kind of tap into our subconscious and just let our body follow what our body wants and our body desires, we can learn so much about, I think, ourselves. And I think that leaning into what feels good, what feels right, following that and how to kind of steer ourselves away from, you know, the voice in the back of a person's head or, you know, the doubts or the insecurities and all those kind of societal standards and scripts, but it's the same outside of sex as well. You know, how do we lean into what we really want and go after that or away from the things we think we're supposed to just because people say, well, you follow this route, you know, you do this, then you, these are the next steps as society tells us to be successful or to be, you know, a woman or to be a man, whatever. But how do we lean away from those 
scripts and lean more into what hopefully one day will just be the norm versus being shameless and go after what feels good. I think it's, you know, practice makes perfect. And if you practice in one part of your life, it will transfer to a different, you know, yeah, like it's so simple. I was just talking to a therapist about this. He was like, I know the work we're doing right now. He was like, it's just, it sounds so simple, but literally you're just practicing how to calm your brain down. And like, that is all you need to do in order to change your brain. Right. Okay. Well, as we get ready to wrap up and go into our rapid fire questions, I just had one more question for you, which would be, you know, whether it be in the instance of sex or relationships of any kind, I was wondering what you would say is one of the most important lessons that that you've learned. In life, um, drink more water. Um, (laughs) It's always a good one. (laughs) I'm actually going to go, like when I think more about sex, I think um, for me it's a little bit more... I would say there's two things I've really learned through sex. I mean, it's always just like I I learn about who I am through sex. And a lot of that has to do with touching my boundaries and redefining my boundaries by realizing I don't like doing something anymore that I used to like doing or I want to try something and I try it and I don't like it or I do like it, but that I really learn through experimentation and Everything from it's okay to realize I really didn't like something I thought I was going to like to, you know, when I was sexually assaulted, feeling like a lot of like, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? To just like, you know, my experiences happen and I learn from them and I get better at setting boundaries and understanding myself also by having some of the experiences that I don't like too. Sorry that that happened to you. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, that experience of just constant iteration, I guess, in startup lingo, you know, be it in sex or again, something that applies to the rest of your life, trying a career. And if you like it, if you don't, what parts do you like? What parts you don't dating a new person? What, what parts of them do you like? What parts do you don't? And I always tell people that in relationships and in careers, you know, you're never going to know exactly what you do like. So you just have to try things and, and then you learn from them and maybe you like them and then you know to follow that and lean towards that and maybe you don't. And that's really the only way to get you closer to finding what you do like. And sex is, it's like food or clothing. You know, how often do our tastes change? And, you know, we love to try new things, try on a new outfit that doesn't really feel like it's us. But, you know, sometimes we wear it a couple times and then we don't want to go back to it or try a restaurant. And we don't love it. Uh, and sometimes you just want to like, keep the same basic thing because simple is good. And our tastes and our curiosities evolve and some are reinforced and some go away. And so just reminding ourselves that all of life is like that, including sex. Okay, so for rapid fire. There are two short rounds and the first one, they're just straightforward questions that you either, you know, choose one or give an answer. Most of them are, are one or the other. Perfect. Okay. Pizza or pasta? Pasta. Sunrise yoga or dancing till sunrise? Dancing till sunrise. Drink of choice? Red wine. Hugs or kisses? Hugs. 
sex or intimacy? Mm, intimacy. Nature or nurture? Nurture. Best year of your life? Uh, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so half hearted. I was like, I just look what I want, you know? I'm like, put it, it's yeah, an affirmation, yeah. you know? <laughs> you're out there. It's going to fulfill itself. Who's one of your heroes? Um, my grandmother. What kind of dog would you be? I'd like to think I'd be like this big, chill dog, but I'm like tiny and yappy. So like I'd be like a Shih Tzu. <laughs> Something you're excited for in the next year? I, I'm going to, oh my God, I'm going to Patagonia to see the total solar eclipse in December. <gasps> Amazing. Isn't that cool? Chile? Are you going to Chile? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to the Chilean side. I am right now. Really? But I'm in yeah. Oh, that's so fun. That's cool. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, and your favorite tough question to ask someone. Oh my God, I don't have a favorite tough question. Um, I, I guess. Ooh, okay. Okay. Never mind. I have one. Your first policy as president. I actually have another one that I ask people all the time, which is what would you like, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Oh. That's a good one. Yeah. It's from other people. It's like an 80% of self-help books. Well, what would you like people to say? And then what do you think people will say? Hopefully one is inspo for the other. I think, yeah, definitely. And it could help you maybe see the gaps. Um, but I think even just doing the, what would you want them to say helps you just give you a North Star to move towards. Yeah. Okay, the next round and the last round is just word association. So I tell you a word and you say whatever word comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, culture. Intimacy. Sex. Fun. Love. Life. You. An illusion. Us. <laughs> Reality. <laughs> Be. Be kind. Man. Woman. Be a man. Um, just show up. <laughs> Such a low standard. <laughs> Change. Um, inevitable. Hope. Cultivated. And BBXX. Intimacy It was actually the first one that came to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's it. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode in partnership with Dane Products. And don't forget to celebrate with 15% off on us at daneproducts.com with the code BBXX15. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, 
follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world and subscribe to the book club newsletter where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.